And I pray, Lord, that everything that is said, everything that is done here, Lord, would glorify you. Open up our hearts. May we understand you more in this, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. One more time, would you give the Lord praise in His house this morning. Bless the Lord. Mighty God. Praise God. How many of you are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. We serve a risen Savior. Amen. Bless the Lord. Before you're seated, turn to somebody and tell them you love them in Jesus' mighty name. Bless the Lord. Let's see if I can get any takers on this here today. How many of you would say that while you were growing up, you ever thought about running away from home? Let me see your hands. How many of you ever thought of it? Okay. Or maybe the better question is, how many of you growing up actually tried to run away? Like you got a foot out the door. There's more of you in this second service than the first. We got more rebels here today. Um, you got one foot out of the door, a number of you. Maybe the really good question here is, now that you're grown up, how many of you have ever thought about running away from home now. Be careful with that one. You know, the other day I was reading an article that had in it a number of letters that children actually left uh, their parents to tell them that they were running away. Now, I've put them up on the screen. I don't know how well you'll be able to see them, but I just thought it would be nice to, to read these to you today. The first one Little girl says, by the time you read this, I might be leaving. If you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you go right from our house. I love you. Dear everyone, the second letter says, I'm leaving your home. I know Jerry and dad love me, but I know that mom doesn't. And thanks for letting me use your house for these long eight years. <laughs> I can see mom doesn't want us, most likely me, so I am leaving this letter to Jerry and dad, and maybe mom, okay mom too. Jerry may have my chair, and dad can have my room, and mom can have the thing that I sleep with. I got to go now, I'll see you, so bye, almost your little girl, Savannah. <laughs> mom, I'm going to run away tomorrow at 9.30, when you and dad are sleeping, <laughs> Be sure to say goodbye forever, Emily. P.S. I'm packing tonight. <laughs> Dear Mommy, your troubles are going to be gone soon. I will run away tomorrow so you can have a better life without me, Ariana. P.S. Carla is a better daughter than me anyway. And if you can tell, there's a picture of her family and then the picture of Carla with a heart around her and a picture of herself with a line drawn through it. Now, the last one is great. Mom, I ran away, not because you are mean or anything. I only wanted to meet the Spice Girls. Sarah. <laughs> Priceless. You know, obviously, those are all grade school hijinks. But we know that the subject of teenage runaways is a much more serious issue. It is a tragedy. And uh, it is one thing for a child to throw a temper tantrum. 
It's another story when a teenager has the will to take matters into their own hands and run away from home. It's a serious issue, and I don't want anyone thinking that I am minimizing that. I think you all understand the difference. It's serious when a teenager runs away from home. In fact, there may even be some families here today that to one degree or another have had to face the subject of teenage runaways. It's a serious issue. Now, I am not an expert on it at all. I read several articles leading up to today's message just so that I could familiarize myself with the subject matter. What's interesting is, as you read these things, there's some clarity that comes. And I do not want to try and oversimplify a very complex and complicated issue. We know that there are some teenagers that run away from home because they genuinely fear for their lives. They believe that staying at home could put them at risk. We know that that is a very real issue. But it is safe to say that with all the studies that have been done, the overwhelming majority of teenagers run away from home for one reason and one reason only. They do not want to submit to parental authority. They do not want to submit to the authority of a guardian. No one is going to tell them how they are going to live. No one is going to tell them how they are going to conduct themselves. They want to master their own course. And so they run away for the sheer fact, I want to live my life the way that I want to live it. And what is so tragic is that as you go through these stories, you see that that is the overwhelming reason. Even within the reasons, you can see that there is commonality in all of them. I mean, there was this one article that I was reading that was particularly interesting, and they were giving some of the the reasons that primarily emerge when you consider teenage runaways. One of them was a, uh, a life crisis. Maybe the teenager is going through an identity crisis, a teenage pregnancy, various crises that they experience, and they do not want to speak to their parents about it. They don't want their parents involved with the process and working through it, and so they run away because, again, they want to process it on their own and decide what they are going to do with this crisis that they are experiencing. Uh, one reason that is often cited, and we've kind of mentioned that, is a clash of wills. Mom and dad say this is the way it's going to be in our house. And the teenager says that is not how I'm going to live. And so one day they just, in rebellion, run away from home. Because again, they do not want to submit to the authority of their parents. Sadly, there is a, another cause that is often cited, another reason that is given, and that is substance abuse. Teenagers become addicted to alcohol or to some other substance and either because they do not want to give it up or they're not willing to confide in their parents and get their involvement, they just run away from home. Again, trying to figure it out on their own to determine the course that they are going to take. And so as you hear all of these reasons that are given, the one common thread that runs through all of them is, I don't want to submit to the authority of my parents. 
It doesn't matter whether it's a crisis or it's an addiction or it is a matter of wills that are clashing. At the end of the day, no one, including my parents, are going to tell me how I'm going to live my life. I don't want to submit to it. And tragically, those students will run away from home and within a very short amount of time, they will find themselves facing greater trials, greater tribulations, greater difficulties, greater challenges, greater sorrows, greater pains than what they would have ever experienced living at home, even on the worst day. It's sad. And I'm sure that at that moment, at that particular time, it seemed like the best decision, maybe even the only decision, but in a very short time frame, they come to realize that that is simply not the case. And that the rules and the laws that mom and dad had in the home, though they appeared to be oppressive, actually were protective. And that there was a liberty and a freedom within the structure of the home that they're now never going to experience on their own. You know, a few weeks ago when I sat down and I really began to think about Easter... And I really began to think about what the Lord would want me to share here today. I just was saying, Lord, I don't want the same standard resurrection fare. I mean, we come to church on Easter and we expect to hear a message on the resurrection. And I mean, I, I understand that and we are going to touch on it. But listen, the, the very fact that you're here today means that to one degree or another, you believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. And so, you know, what am I going to do? Come up here and try to reprove to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because even if you are not a Christ follower, by virtue of you being here today, to one degree or another, you have come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day 2,000 years ago. And I, I just said, Lord, you know, this is the one Sunday when I know it's going to be packed and I don't want the standard resurrection fair. I want to come to the people with something that I know you are saying to all of us. Something that when we leave here, we will consider for days, prayerfully for weeks and months to come. And as I prayed, the word runaway kept coming to me. Runaway. I'd never thought about that. What does that have to do with the resurrection? Runaway. And then I thought, here Easter Sunday morning, we know that houses of worship all over the United States and all over this planet are packed to capacity with men and women who have come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet I cannot help wondering that among all of them that have gathered to celebrate the resurrection, how many within them are running away from the very message of the resurrection? Now, I'm not talking about they don't believe in the resurrection because these individuals would tell you that they believe Jesus died on the cross for their sin, that he rose again on the third day, that he is coming again in clouds of glory. They would tell you that there is no other name given by which man may be saved. Yes, they believe all of the things about Jesus Christ, but actively, presently, and even aggressively, they are running away from the message of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. And the reason that they are running away from the message of His resurrection is the same reason that teenagers run away from home. They do not want to submit to the authority of God in their life. They have no problem believing that Jesus died, believing that He rose from the dead, believing that there is no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus. But what they resist is that it means I've got to surrender my life to the Lord and live for Him. And there are men and women who year after year after year run away from the message of the resurrection simply because no one, not even Jesus, is going to tell me how to live my life. Oh, I'm going to worship God on my terms. Oh, I'm going to serve the Lord, but I'm going to define what that means. I'm not going to have Jesus or a pastor or God or a Bible tell me how I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to determine it. And folks, I would tell you that they are in our churches every Sunday defining how they are going to serve the Lord rather than submitting themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many are running away from Him even here this morning. Oh, you would leave saying, I believe it all, but you're running away from Him. You know, in the Bible, there are many stories of men and women who have run away from the Lord. Many stories. You know, the Bible tells us of those who ran away temporarily and those who ran away permanently. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart, and yet we know of at least two occasions when David ran from the Lord. We know that Jonah ran away from the Lord. In the New Testament, we're told of a man named Demas who ran away from the Lord, loving this present world more than Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul talked of a great falling away, a running away from the faith in the last days. The Bible speaks often about men and women running away from Jesus Christ. And yet in John's Gospel, we have recorded for us one of the greatest runaway stories in all of history. A mass defection from the faith, potentially affecting the lives of tens of thousands of men and women and children. A defection that took place in one moment of time, and at the end of the day, it really came down to this. An unwillingness to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The single greatest defection from the faith was a result of men and women saying, Jesus, not even you have a right to tell me how I'm going to live my life. And they turned their back on it all because they wanted to be the one in charge. It actually came at the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry that had lasted for about a year. Jesus had gone into the region of Galilee and he had walked through all of the towns, all of the villages, all the hamlets and the cities. And he was amassing a great following of men and women. Scholars and historians tell us that the population of Galilee at that time was somewhere between 400 and 450,000 people. It was densely, densely populated. And in one year's time, Jesus had amassed so many followers that when he would go into a city, the Bible tells us that they were stepping on each other. 
that they were hard to get through the cities and the, and the streets because everyone was so pressed in tightly. That's how many people were following Jesus at one particular time there in Galilee. And what is mind-boggling to me is that this defection from the faith came on the heels of one of the most celebrated miracles of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that is the feeding of 5,000, which was more like the feeding of 20,000 or 25,000 when you begin to add in the women and the children. And yet, in spite of this creative miracle where 25,000 people were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish came the greatest defection from the faith. That's interesting because many of us believe if there were more signs and wonders, if there were more miracles, then more people would follow Jesus Christ. And yet if you read the Word of God, you will find that the more miracles take place, the more men and women begin to look for signs and wonders and miracles rather than going after the Master. In fact, there are some people, that's all they want from God is His help. No one wants to come and surrender to Him. And that is what I want to talk about with you today. And I want you to see this defection. And we're going to tie it into the resurrection. This is probably going to be the most unique resurrection message you've ever heard. But I want you to hear what the Lord is saying to us. We pick it up in John chapter 6. If you want to turn there, you can. It's John chapter 6 and verse number 53. I'm going to go right into it. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Did you hear that word, unless? How audacious that Jesus would actually lay down a demand like that. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead... He who eats this bread will live forever. I love that. Now listen, we're picking this up right toward the end of the story. So it does warrant a little bit of an explanation. And I'm not going to take a long time with this, but I want you to understand the context. First, understand that the mass that he is speaking to, this crowd that he is speaking to right now, is the same crowd that was with him the day before when he fed 25,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Same crowd. So that day, they ate a miraculous meal, and now it's in the morning, they come in and say, Jesus, what do you got for breakfast? Come on, Jesus, give us a miracle. Wow us. Awe us. Come on, Jesus, what what miracle are you going to perform for us today? What do you got up your sleeve today? We want a sign. We want a wonder. We want a miracle. We know that because at verse 30 it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? Listen to this. That we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Give us a sign and wonder so that we can believe that you are the Messiah. You know, if I were Jesus, I think I would have looked at them and said, 
Really? Really? I mean, were you just with me yesterday? Yesterday I took five loaves of bread and two fish and I multiplied them in a creative miracle and there was enough not only to feed 25,000 people to their full but there were actually leftovers that we put in baskets and gave to the individual that made the initial sacrifice. If that won't convince you that I'm the Son of God then what miracle could I ever perform that would make you believe in me? I mean, isn't it sad that even today there are people that would just say, God has got to show me a sign, another sign, another sign. Folks, can I tell you, that is the only sign that we ever need, is that Jesus rose again on the third day. If that doesn't convince you that He is the Son of God, then nothing else will. But there are people that are like that, that God has to do everything that they want Him to do in order for them to believe, and if He doesn't, then God doesn't care. But Jesus doesn't answer that way. No, Jesus answers much differently. And again, I'm summarizing what Jesus says. But Jesus is saying, listen, you have completely missed the point of feeding 25,000 people. He said, I fed you a miraculous meal of bread and fish yesterday, but today you're hungry again. He says, what I have come to do is not to take care of your physical needs because anything that I do on a physical level is going to be temporary. You ate yesterday, but you're hungry today. You drank yesterday, but you're thirsty today. I haven't come to take care of all of your physical needs. I have come to take care of your spiritual need. I have come to, to take care of the craving that is in your heart. My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And if you will eat of my flesh, and you will drink of my blood, you will have life. You'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. Because I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Amen. That's what he was saying to them. But he says, unless you partake of it, there is no life inside of you. That the only way you can have this life is if you take me in. And this is what he was saying to them. He was saying that from this point on, you have to have an intimate relationship with me. He was saying from this point on, and we know he was talking about the cross and the sacrifice that he was making, but he was saying to them, unless you are willing to die to yourself and live for me, unless you are willing to surrender your life to my authority, you have no life in you. That's what he was saying to them. I don't want you to live for yourself anymore. I want you to die to yourself and now live for me and for the glory of the Father in heaven. I want you to surrender. And unless you are willing to surrender, then there is no life within you. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying this is about true fellowship. This is not going to be about miracles anymore. This is not going to be about signs and wonders anymore. This is going to be about you surrendering your life to me and following me wherever I take you. It is about you taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following me. It is about true fellowship, about a true relationship, not this superficial external love that you always express when you want something. It is a continual dying to yourself and living for me. And unless you do it, you have no eternal life. 
Well, I'm going to tell you, that went over about as well as it's going over this morning. (laughs) We're Americans. We don't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear it either. In fact, in verse 41, it says, The Jews then complained about him. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So he preaches a message, and immediately they begin to complain. They immediately begin to quarrel with Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? Who said anything about surrender? I mean, who said anything about giving up our lives for you? We just came for breakfast. We just want a miracle. We just want you to heal somebody. We just want to be wowed and, and just blown away by your power. We don't want to surrender anything to you. We just want you to heal our kids when they're sick. We want you to heal us when we're sick. We want you to bail us out of our financial problems. We want you at arm's length. We just want you there so that you can bail us out of all of our problems. Who said anything about living for you? Who said anything about surrendering? And and how arrogant that you would say to us that unless we surrender to you, we can't have everlasting life. Therefore, many of his disciples, the Bible goes on to say, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, the way that that's translated into the English language, it'd be very easy to misunderstand what was being said here. Because initially, you might think that what they were saying is, this is hard to understand. Would you clarify it? It would almost sound like they're saying, you're talking over our head, Jesus. We don't get this. So could you simplify it? Can you give us the cliff notes? Can you just, you know, clarify the issue for us? But that is not what they were saying. When they said, this is a hard saying, the word saying there probably would be better understood statement. It is a hard statement. And the word hard there means that it was a harsh, rough, stiff unforgiving, unbendable word is what they were saying. They were saying, Jesus, what you just said is hard. It offends us. It's rough. It's stiff. It's inflexible. It's rigid. What you have just said to us offends us because you've said that there is no other way to have everlasting life unless we surrender our lives to you. And that deeply offends us. No, folks. The problem here was not that they didn't understand it and they needed clarity. They understood exactly what he was saying. They just didn't want to accept what it meant. They understood completely what Jesus was saying. They just didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to accept what it meant. That it meant unless they give up their life to live for the Lord, they could never have everlasting life. And they said, oh, that's harsh. You're offending me, Jesus. How could you say anything like that? You know, as I thought about that this week, I I thought about it in the context of the resurrection Because can I tell you, after all of the years of of talking with men and women and hearing the various arguments that men and women will raise as far as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is concerned, I, I have come to understand this, that the problem that people have with the resurrection is not the resurrection. 
Because every once in a while you'll hear somebody that say, you know what, I, I really dig Jesus. He's a cool guy and he's a really moral teacher and I love a lot of the teachings that he said. But you know what, I don't know that I could ever be a Christ follower because, you know, I just can't buy into his resurrection. Do you really want me to believe that he rose from the dead? And they make it sound like that's the problem. Listen, that's not the problem. If you believe that there is a transcendent, all-powerful God that is above time, space, and matter, the resurrection is nothing at all. If you believe that God is over time, space, and matter, then him raising his son to life on the third day is nothing. It's as easy to him as it is for you and I to breathe in right now. God can raise his son from the dead because he is not restricted by time, space, and matter. He is a God of it all in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen to that? So the issue, the issue, the problem with the resurrection is not the resurrection, it's what the resurrection means. Because if Jesus rose on the third day, that's it. Game over. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through Him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then there is no other religion. There is no other religious leader. There is no debate. If Jesus rose from the dead, He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords and is worthy of all of our praise. Can you say amen to that this morning? And that's what people don't want to hear. And yet, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Can I tell you, the whole Christian faith hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he did not rise from the dead, we might as well pack it up and go home because we've got nothing to offer. In fact, we're to be pitied above all people because we're walking with a false hope. But we don't have a false hope today because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came out of that tomb victorious over death hell and the grave and he's worthy of our praise this morning come on give him praise if you believe that so don't let anybody throw you off the problem people have with the resurrection is not the resurrection miracle it is the resurrection message because if Jesus rose from the dead then I have no alternative but to bow my knee and surrender my life to him and say not my will but your will be done and let's be honest there are people that say no way no way I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it not even Jesus is going to tell me how to live my life I'll believe he died. I'll believe he rose again. I'll believe that he's coming again. I'll believe that he's the only name given by which man may be saved. But I am not going to surrender my life to him. Well, then you have no life in you. Hmm. That's what happens here. They could not get beyond that. And the Bible says that when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? And from that time, I think the saddest verse in the scriptures, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And when you look at the construction of that verse, it literally means that they left him and never came back again. That was it. They heard one message, it offended them. And they walked with him no more. Never to come back to the Lord. <laughs> I got a question. 
And it's a question that's been haunting me all week long. And there's no answer to this. I mean, there really isn't. It's just a question that there is no answer really to. And I have studied this portion of Scripture. I've preached on it many times in the past. But I never thought about this. Where did they go? Have you ever considered that? Like, where did they go? I know they went back home, but, but where did they go after this? Where do you go after you've spent a year with Jesus? For one year, they have heard everything that Jesus has ever said. For one year, they have seen everything that Jesus has ever done. How do you walk away from that? And where do you go? After you've been with Jesus for a year, hearing all that he has preached, seeing all that he has done, where do you go after that? For one solid year, they have watched Jesus raise the dead to life again. For one solid year, they had watched Jesus lay hands on blind eyes and their sight was recovered, on deaf ears and their hearing was restored. They had watched him as he laid his hands upon lame legs and they were filled with strength and they walked in some cases for the very first time in their life. For one solid year, they had watched Jesus cast out demonic spirits from men and women who were oppressed and possessed by the devil. For one solid year, they had heard Jesus say things like, Whoever uh, calls upon my name shall be saved, and say that I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. For one solid year, they knew that Jesus had calmed the storms with one word, that he had walked on the water, and every one of them had seen him feed 25,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Where do you go after that? How do you just walk away? I mean, where do you go after you've had Coke? How do you go back to Pepsi? When you've worn Nike, how do you go back to Adidas? When you've listened to the music of the 80s, how do you listen to the music of any other decade? Do you know what I'm talking about today? Once you've cheered for Dallas, how do you cheer for Philadelphia? <laughs> no, I just had to throw that in. You understand what I'm saying? How do you spend a year with Jesus and then walk away? What do you go to after that? Once you've seen the resurrected Savior, where do you run? They were runaways. And for one reason, think about it, they were willing to overlook everything they had seen, forget everything they had heard for one reason. I don't want to surrender. I'm going to live my life. Remember the old statement? You don't hear it very often anymore, but they would cut off their nose to spite their face. Remember that? These men and women were willing to cut themselves off from eternity to spite Christ's audacious claim, unless you surrender to me, you cannot have life. They would rather spend eternity separated from God than surrender their life to Jesus. I found myself thinking a lot this past week about the runaway stories of the resurrection. I don't know if you ever thought about it. The men and women who ran away in the face of a resurrected Christ. And I wonder how many people are running away from the truth today for the sheer fact that they're going to live their life on their terms and not surrender to the Lord. Like I think of Judas. And I know some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Judas didn't see Jesus risen from the dead. You're right, he didn't. So don't come up and you know, 
Tell me that I'm wrong, okay? I know that he did not see Jesus risen from the dead. But he at least knew Jesus was prophesying he'd come back alive. And he had no reason to believe that he wasn't going to. He may not have believed, but he had no reason to believe because everything that Jesus had ever said came to pass. Everything. He was with Jesus when Jesus said, I will be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. I will suffer, I will die, but I will rise again on the third day. He was just with Jesus a few hours ago in the upper room when Jesus said to all the disciples, you're going to be offended about me tonight and you're all going to be scattered. And he put out uh, poor Judas on his own and said, I know what you're going to do and what you're going to go do. Do it quickly. Everything that Jesus had said had come to pass. There was no reason for him to doubt that Jesus was going to rise again on the third day. And there's something that happened. We read about it in Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 3. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was, com- was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Don't miss this. Uh, as everything went down, there is a moment of clarity that comes into Judas's mind. And he comes face to face with what he had done. The Bible says that he felt remorse for what he had done. So certainly he regretted it. Certainly there was awareness of it. He at least makes some steps. He goes back to his co-conspirators, throws the money at their feet and said, I can't spend a dime of this. I am guilty of shedding innocent blood. He was fully aware of what he had done. But here's the thing. Before you feel too much sorrow for this man. Remember that rather than waiting to see if Jesus would rise again and throw himself at the mercy of a resurrected Savior, instead he took matters into his own hands, became his own judge, his own jury, and his own executioner, and hung himself. Committed suicide, not just physical suicide, but spiritual suicide. Because when he opened up his eyes the next time, it would be separation from God for all of eternity. Even in his sin, he was still too proud to submit himself to Jesus. Because he knew, if I go to Jesus for forgiveness, I've got to surrender my life to him. And I'd rather kill myself than give up my life. I wonder how many men and women are running today from Jesus Because they do not want to seek forgiveness from him. Because if I seek forgiveness in him, I've got to surrender. And they go into eternity committing spiritual suicide. Sad. I can get most people to admit. Most reasonable, rational people will admit that they've sinned against God. But that's when they become their own judge, their own jury, their own executioner. And say, this is what I'm going to do to make it right. This is how I'm going to deal with my sin. If I do good, then it'll cover up my bad. But I am not going to go to the resurrected Jesus who can forgive my sin because if I go to him, I've got to give my life to him. And I want to call the shots. How many people committing spiritual suicide for the sake of being their own king? Folks, don't run. There is still only one man that can forgive sin. His name is Jesus Christ. 
Don't run from him. I think of Peter. I got to move quickly. I think of Peter. You know, sometimes it's often overlooked that even after seeing Jesus risen from the dead, Peter became overwhelmed with disappointment and discouragement and even tried to run away from the Lord. You read about it in John 21 in verse 30. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter has already seen him a couple of times. Simon Peter said to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. They were all fishermen when Jesus found them. And even after seeing Jesus risen from the dead, they are so badly rocked by the events of these last few days that they become discouraged and overwhelmed and they just wanted some normalcy in their life. Something that they could hold on to. They just couldn't take the uncertainty. They were so badly beaten up by events in life. And they started running away. You know, the older I get, the more I appreciate the words that Jesus once said. Those who endure to the end, the same shall be saved. I would never want to be a child again. But I'll tell you, there is something that I envy of children, and that is their innocence. Don't you just love? They have no care in the world. They don't care about North Korea. (laughs) They don't care about Russia. They don't care about China. They don't worry about the mother of all bombs. They don't worry about any of that. They just want to play and have fun. That's all their, their biggest decisions is how big will the ball I play with next be? I mean, that's all they concern themselves with is just having fun. The older that we get, the more we have to process, the more we have to deal with, and the more hardened our hearts become, the more jaded we become, even as Christians Let's be honest. Though we know life is not always going to be easy, it can be so overwhelming that there's just times when you want to go fishing. (laughs) Lord, I just want to go back to something that's normal. And you run away. Let's be honest. Sometimes the way that the gospel is presented in the United States of America, it makes it sound that as long as I pray and have enough faith, God will give me everything I want and everything will work out. And then when life falls apart and comes apart at the seams, we immediately think that God has abandoned us and we become discouraged and disappointed and run. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been running for years because you prayed for your grandmother to get healed and she died. Because you prayed for your marriage to be restored and it ended in divorce. And you prayed for your kids to come home, but your relationship is more distant than it's ever been before. And you feel that God has abandoned you. And now you're disappointed and you're running from him. Folks, please, don't run from him anymore. Jesus never promised you life would be easy, but he did promise you, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you even to the end. Bless God. You know, what I love about this story, and I I wish I could take time, but Jesus actually came to them. He showed up on the shore and restored them. And you know, Jesus has come to you today to say, don't run anymore. Come to me. Come back to me. I also think of the soldiers. Do you ever consider the story of the soldiers? Listen to what it says about them. 
These are the soldiers at the tomb of Christ. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him while you were sleeping. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews even unto this day. Now the reason that I pay so much attention to this is because there is not one scripture in the Bible that indicates that anyone saw Jesus rise from the dead. Don't misunderstand me. There were many that saw him risen from the dead. Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. We know that. But no one saw Jesus rise from the dead. Not one person saw it. No one witnessed it. It was a private moment between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one saw it. A lot of times people will say, well, wait a minute, the stone was rolled away. Yeah, but not so he could get out, but so that man could get in and see that he wasn't there any longer. No one saw him rise from the dead, but the soldiers. And there was a guard of them, which there were 60 soldiers in a Roman guard. So there were 60 soldiers. Roman soldiers at the tomb. These men saw something supernatural. They heard the earthquake. They felt the earthquake. They saw the angel descend. They saw the angel roll the stone away. They even went in to see that Jesus wasn't there. I mean, they were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They run to the chief priest because they're afraid they're going to be executed for letting Jesus out. And they were given a large sum of money to buy their silence. And they took that money and they reported that Jesus had not risen from the dead. The question I'm asking is, did you have enough money to pay for the psychiatrists and the therapists and the counselors it was going to take for you to try and forget what you saw that first Easter morning? I'm going to tell you, there's not enough alcohol in the world to erase the memory of Jesus coming out of the tomb. But they preferred money over master. They ran from the resurrection for money. Folks, let me tell you something. There are men and women who are running from Jesus for money and for the things of this world. The Bible says that in the last days, men and women will be lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Jesus said of it, now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out that word and he becomes unfruitful. One day a a young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to have everlasting life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've been keeping the commandments since I was a little boy. And he says, yeah, but there's one thing you've been lacking. Sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. I wonder if Jesus came to us and said, empty out your 401k. Give it to the poor and come and follow me wherever I take you. How many of us would really give it up all? The Bible says that he was sad at his word 
And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Where did he go? Back to his money. This kid thought that he had too much to lose to surrender to the Lord. Can I tell you today? You've got too much to gain to walk away from Jesus. Please, surrender to the Lord. Don't run for this world. And then finally, I think of the religious leaders. The religious leaders... The religious leaders knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew he was risen from the dead. You know, Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, which is an impossible probability. Fulfilled them all. They knew all of the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. How come they didn't know that it was Jesus? (laughs) At one point, Jesus said to to the religious leaders, you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. In other words, you have a man-made theology that you've elevated above the very word of God and it's for the sake of your man-made theology that you refuse to see the resurrected Christ. And can I tell you, that's happening in the United States. Because here's what people are doing today. They, they, they have their favorite scriptures and they put all those favorite scriptures together and, and they put them together and then they listen to some things that mom told them and dad told them and grandmother and grandfather and they were watching Oprah last night and they like what she said and they put that in there and Lady Gaga was singing some spiritual things so I'm going to throw that into my theology and then I saw my favorite TV preacher the other day and I'm going to put that all together and I'm going to make my own religion. And this is what I'm going to believe. And I don't care what the pastor says to me. This is what I believe. Well, that would be wonderful if you were going to be judged by what you believe. But unfortunately, when you stand before the Lord, you and I are going to be judged by the word of the living God Almighty. So you can run, but you can't hide. We are left with the assumption that 20,000 people left Jesus that day. And Jesus turned to the 12 that were left. And he said, do you also want to go away? Now, I take notice of that. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you, I don't know a pastor alive that doesn't want a crowd on Sunday morning. I mean, this is our Super Bowl. For a pastor, (laughs) Easter Sunday is the Super Bowl. I mean, it's everything in me not to take my phone out and take a selfie of this. Like, this 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 is a big moment for pastors. This is it for us. We live for Easter. This is what encourages us through the rest of the year is at least we're going to pack the house out twice on Easter. You know that. So I don't know if I preached one sermon and I watched 20,000 people walk out and I got 12 left that my first question to them would be, are you going to leave too? But see, Jesus didn't care about popularity. He didn't care about being praised and having accolades. He was concerned about truth because truth sets men and women free. Listen to me, folks. Truth does not care about your feelings. Truth doesn't care about your emotions. Truth does not care about how sensitive you are. I know, we don't like that. Truth doesn't care about whether you need a coloring book and a kitten to get through the difficult days ahead. Truth doesn't care about any of that. Truth doesn't care whether you embrace it or not, accept it or not, whether it offends you or not. It doesn't care. It just is truth. 
And it wants to show you the way to freedom in Christ Jesus. Paul said it this way. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul said, listen, we know going in that when we preach Christ and Him crucified, some are going to laugh us and say it's foolishness. Others are going to be offended. But to those who believe, it is the power of God and the salvation. So every time I stand before men and women and preach, I know some are going to leave saying, that offends me. And some are going to leave and say, you'd have to be a nut to believe anything. But there may be one who leaves here today and say, I believe. And that gospel will be the power of God to save them from their sin and make them a son or daughter of Almighty God. Amen. So, so he turns to the disciples and he says, are you going to leave? Boy, Peter, he could put his foot in his mouth. But there were times when Peter did it right. And listen to what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus said, or Peter says, Jesus, where are we going to go? Your words may offend us. Your, your words may be harsh at times. Your words may be abrasive. Your words may be inflexible. Your words may be rigid. And they may make us angry at times. But where are we going to go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. You know, I'm going to say something that might burst some of your bubbles. But, you know, God's not up in heaven Begging you to come to him. Like, God doesn't need you. What? <laughs> he needs me. No, God doesn't need you. God's not up in heaven saying, Oh, please come to me. I won't, I'll be less God unless you come to me. God is God alone. And if everyone rejects him, he is still God. He's not begging anyone. He just says, listen, I'm worthy of praise because I came to you in your sin. I gave you my son. I have now sent you my Holy Spirit. I'm not begging you to come to me. So you're free to do whatever you want. But I would ask you this, where are you going to go? Because money cannot buy you eternal salvation and your own judgment of yourself cannot buy you forgiveness where are you going to go only Jesus has the words of eternal life don't run away run to him in Jesus name bless God hallelujah bless the Lord Every head bowed, every eye closed.
I'm just going to say this. That at the end of this service, there are going to be some people right here at the front that are willing to pray with you that you might receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior.